confidence toward God is our message today. 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. Confidence toward God. Our message this morning addresses a vital need for the lives of every Christian. We need confidence toward God. But especially to those of you who are coming to the end of your high school education, moving out then into a new realm, and we'll be celebrating that tonight in our evening service. Uh, But uh, you understand that you'll be moving away from a lot of the things that have brought stability and strength into your lives. You've been led by your parents. You've been taught by your teachers and influenced by your friends and surrounded by a community that's full of uh, Christian people, strong Christians. If you've been active in church, and most of you who are here today have been active in church, then you've been given a great blessing because you have been taught the truth of Scripture. You've been taught the Word of God. Uh, But regardless of where you're going from here, young people, whether college, vocational education, or into the workforce and the military, you'll be headed into a situation where you are going to be placed under a lot of pressure. And uh, that's true, though, of all of us. In fact, one writer summed it up best with an old saying. He said, if the devil can't get you to drink, he'll get you to doubt. If he can't get you to drink... He'll get you to doubt. Now, you might, it might seem a little bit antiquated in a world where designer drugs are everywhere to be talking about alcohol. Uh, but the prevalence and availability of alcohol and alcohol addiction makes it an ever-present source of temptation. Uh, alcohol interferes with the brain's communication pathways. It changes mood and behavior. It makes it hard for you to think clearly and to move with coordination. And you will have a lot of voices calling you to join that party crowd and to be involved in that. In fact, as you go uh, through your high school experience, you've probably already seen some of your friends who have gone down that road to their destruction. Uh, Some that haven't survived it. More that you'll see in the years to come. If you go to college, you'll see many of your fellow students who don't make it through their first year of college because they get caught up in the party crowd. But for everyone who goes down that path, there are dozens, dozens who get caught by the snare of doubt. You see, the devil has been using doubt against God's people literally from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 4, he spoke to Eve and said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now God had said in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. So what did he tell Eve? No, you won't. You won't surely die. But God instead knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. God is holding out on you. And his logic was uh, easily expressed. He said to Eve, Eve, you can't know this just on the basis of what God says. You need to try it for yourself and figure it out for yourself because God can't be trusted. What is that? 
but sowing the seeds of doubt. He's been doing that ever since, and he does it because it works. You see, while one generation comes and another generation passes, is passing away, and that's going on throughout all of the history of humanity. One generation is born, another generation dies. We live for a short time. We're here. We have to make all of our choices. We have to figure everything out in the limited time that's available to us. And by the way, James tells us that that passes like a vapor of steam. Remember that? So quickly it passes. The devil, on the other hand, is an eternal being. And he watches this play out in the lives of humanity. Why is he so good at playing people? He's been playing people for a long, long time. Jesus called him the liar, the father of lives, the destroyer. Why? Because he loves to destroy people with his lies. And he's good at what he does. It's all about creating doubt. Now when we start talking about doubt as it relates to God's people, a lot of times our minds will immediately go to the idea of of doubting one's salvation. And if you doubt your eternal destiny, I want you to tell you, I want to understand something this morning. You're not alone. Uh, Most all of God's people at some point in time in their life have doubted whether they were saved or not. And uh, it's a terrible ordeal to go through. But I want you to know you don't have to live your whole life in that kind of doubt. And God doesn't want you to. In fact, we'll see in just a moment uh, that John has written this entire epistle so that we might know that we have eternal life. But today we're not so much thinking about doubt as it relates just to our salvation, but doubting our faith altogether. Uh, See, that's what the devil is out for. He wants us to turn away from our faith in God, to deny the validity of our faith in Jesus Christ. So it's not so much a struggle with whether salvation is genuine, but whether their faith is genuine. And what he's wanting you to do is to doubt it. I watched a Saturday morning program with my grandkids recently. I was hoping for cartoons, but you know, I couldn't find Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner anywhere I just, none of those were around. I don't know where they've all gone, but uh, that's all right. There was some uh, nature program, and boy, they really wanted to watch that because it had animals and bugs and all that good stuff. And I was sitting there watching this program. Now, remember, this is Saturday morning, and here's a program geared toward children, and it was all about science and evolution and adaptation. Uh, They spent a lot of time on a hummingbird. They were uh, in the Philippines, and there's a particular kind of hummingbird uh, that only feeds on one certain kind of flower so that that hummingbird is completely dependent on that one flower for its survival. It doesn't eat from anything else. And they said that that one type of flower was dependent upon that one kind of hummingbird because it depended on it for its pollination. And they were quick to point out, you know, oh, how, what a wonderful thing this is. What a great proof it is of evolution. <laughs> now, I want to tell you something. I'm sitting there, and I'll ready to tell you, I'm not a scientist. I'm a preacher. But I'm sitting there and saying, now, this don't make sense. If we got a plant there that's dependent upon only one kind of bird and that bird is dependent on only that one kind of plant and either one of them would die without the other, if evolution were true, then both the plant 
and the bird would have died before it could have ever developed in any kind of, of a relationship like it. I don't want to say that it is. It just doesn't work. It doesn't fit. It's not logical. And so being the preacher I was, I said to my, my little girl, I said, now, honey, you know, you know that Jesus made all of this, don't you? And she stopped and looked at me and just as serious as she could be. And she said, no, Pop, God did. Well, I, I'm not going to have that conversation with a four-year-old. I can tell you that right now. But uh, she's got her basic facts right. Uh, God made it all. Yes, honey, he sure did. Uh, you say, you believe that God made a hummingbird to only feed on one flower. Yeah, I believe that. You think God made that flower just so it could be food to that one? Yes, I do. What is that a tribute to? It is a tribute to the power and the creativity of our great God. That he would do such a thing. But you see, the devil starts early. And he's out to deceive them early. He's good at what he does. And he has a lot of time. You see, our church and our ministry can put truth into your minds and hearts for an hour or two a week at best. Meanwhile, you're being bombarded by this effort that is pouring into you nonstop. And as you get out into the world and get to college, you know it gets worse. Dr. Al Mohler wrote in his book, The Gathering Storm, uh, about uh, uh, the effort that's being put into this. He quoted from several general education professors on the collegiate or university level, one of which stated the following. The college experience is the best and the last opportunity for someone to break students' commitment to the moral convictions derived from their parents' religion. Now, I will readily admit that not every college professor has this goal or has this plan, but many of them do. Many do. And doubt is their most useful weapon. You will face the same thing as you go into the workplace. As you're about living your life. You will see it if your parenting days are past. You'll see it not only in your children, but like I do in my grandchildren. And they all need to be able to look at these stable figures in their life. Their parents, their grandparents. And know that we have confidence toward God. They need to see that confidence in us. Because doubt is everywhere. That's why this passage is so great because <coughs> we are given three different statements about the things that we know. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. 1 John 3, 19. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. Now the we in this passage is of the people of God. And He tells us three great things. Think about them. We know life. We know love. And we know truth. <laughs> life, love, and truth. Let me say that again. Life. Love and truth. We as God's people, we know life. We know love and we know truth. 
And he set this knowledge then in the framework in the, uh, against the backdrop, if you will, of a people who are living in another way. They don't know these things. They may claim to be Christians. They may claim to know God. And yet he's going to tell us some things about these folks on the other side. First of all, he calls them murderers. Murderers. And it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. But this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Adam and Eve had two sons, and one was a murderer, and the other was a martyr. The first murder that ever happened on this planet happened because of religion. The first person who ever suffered death under the curse of death died as a martyr because of his faith in the one true God. Abel loved God and honored God in his beliefs and in his religion, but Cain was of the wicked one. And he hated his brother and killed him because of his faithful service of God. Let's put this down plainly and simply today. Murder is of the wicked one. The violence that is the scourge of our, of our land and of our world today comes from only one source. It comes from the wicked one. Every murderer, every abortionist, every genocidal leader, all of the purges that are going on all over the world, they all come from the same source, from the wicked one. And God didn't work up His way to this and, and some long list of things where people start off, you know, they tell a little white lie or two if there is such a thing. No, He started right where they are. They're murderers. They're murderers. And it was that way from the very beginning. Why? Because their works were evil. And the hate works of righteousness, which is the second thing he mentions then. From murder to hatred. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Our world today is full of hatred. And it is a growing hatred. If you pick out a news article and, and pull it up on your computer screen to read it and then read down to the comment section down below it, you will see hatred, all kinds of hatred on full display. And it's on both sides. Those who are on the conservative side speak hatefully toward those who do not agree with them. Those who are on the liberal side speak very hatefully toward those who do not agree with them. That kind of hatred boils in the hearts of people. And it is. All across our land today, this hatred and anger is boiling in the hearts of people and just looking for a place to erupt. And it doesn't have to look very long. And no, God's people aren't immune. I, I read a, a, an account this week of a fellow who's a staff member at a, at a pretty good church in, in California. Uh, the traffic in California is notorious. And so this particular man would get up very early every day just to make sure that he missed the traffic and didn't have to sit in all of that traffic all that time. But on this particular day, he got up and his car wouldn't start. His battery was dead. He had to uh, jump his car off. By the time he got started and got on his way, he was too late. And there he was, stuck right in the middle of all that traffic. Oh, he was furious. 
just so angry. And then out of nowhere, the guy behind him, here they are in this parking lot, one of those notorious interstate parking lots in California, and the guy behind him honks his horn. He thinks, oh, you didn't do that. Yeah, man, I can't believe that guy honked his horn. He was already upset. Now he's angry. Then the guy did it again. Now he's really upset. Well, he better not do it again. <laughs> he did it again. He said, I'm done. He got out of his car. He said, remember, this is a staff guy, pastor at a church. Gets out of his car and goes walking about, taps on that window. What do you think you're doing? And the guy said, I'm doing what your bumper sticker says. Honk if you love Jesus. I would never put one of those things on my car because I don't want you honking at me even if you do love Jesus. I don't like to be honked at. He didn't either. Catch me on a bad day, I might be knocking on your window. We're not real good at uh, suppressing all this. We may think we are, but we're not. This anger and this hatred is growing in our country. And you know it. And it is looking for places to erupt. And it is. Maybe you've noticed that both sides accuse the others of being the ones responsible for the hate. Black people see white people hating. But white people see black people hating. Gay people see straight people hating. And straight people see gay people hating. We can't say no hate exists because it does exist. We all know it's there. And so even while a person is just spewing out venom to the person on the other side of whatever side it is that they're on, they're blind as they're accusing those people, oh, they're haters, but they're blind to the hate that's in their own hearts. It can happen to you and me, folks where we get blind to that hatred. But we need to understand that hate and murder go together in God's economy. Jesus talked about that on the Sermon on the Mount. To those who hate your brother is a murderer. John is just quoting from him. And here it is bringing it up to us there. God sees that hatred in our hearts. But He sees it as murder because He knows that left unchecked, sooner or later, that hatred is going to erupt into violence and death. It might not involve bloodshed. There's a lot of people who are out to kill somebody's reputation. They're out to kill their career. They're out to kill their business. And it's just going on and on and on and it keeps going. But it's the hatred. So this whole concept then of of who we are as the people of God and what we know is set against that backdrop of those who don't know these things and their heart then is full of murder, their heart is full of hate, and their heart is full of indifference. Verse 17, but whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Remember, Jesus gave us a whole parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, to warn us about allowing indifference to develop in our hearts. And a lot of people would say, well, I don't ever kill anybody. I don't even think about killing anybody. I don't hurt anybody. I don't hate anybody, they'd say. But then in their heart, there's not an ounce of concern for anybody 
but themselves. Totally selfish. Have no concern about others. There are people in this world filled with violent anger out to kill and destroy those who disagree with them. But I want you to notice something. They're not Christian people. According to 1 John chapter 3. There's people out there, yes, full of hate and wanting to kill and murder, but they're not God's people. There are people filled with hate and racial hatred for those different than them, class hatred for those with a different livelihood level, gender, gender hatred for men or for women, hatred for people with a different lifestyle. But it isn't Christian people who are filled with that kind of hate. There are people who are filled with themselves, completely and totally selfish and self-centered. But those aren't God's people either. Remember, John lived in an environment where very religious people had nailed your Savior and mine to Calvary's tree. That was religious people who did that. They thought they were doing what God wanted them to do, but you see, they weren't really God's people. I bring this up to you this morning. To remind you that so many times this is used as an attack against our faith. Well, Christian people are just full of hate. No, they're not. Christian people are are just out to destroy everybody. No, they're not. Oh, Christian people fight wars. Have wars been fought over religion? Yes, yes. But was it the true Christian faith? No, it was not. No, it was not. Remember, we worship the Savior who told Simon Peter to bring a sword and then told him to put it away <laughs> and fixed the ear of the man that he had lopped his ear off. See, the kingdom of Jesus Christ was not to be uh, advanced by warfare. That, that's not what, it's, what God has called us to do. We don't advance the kingdom of Christ by hurting and hating and killing. So we don't judge our faith in or the validity of our faith from those who claim to be Christians but aren't. So what then is the real thing? What can get us beyond what we think, what our opinions are, what our beliefs might be, to what we know, what we know to be true and valid? We're going to spend just a few moments then discussing these three things I've already introduced to you. Remember then, these three things. We know life, we know love, and we know truth. But they're set then against the background of people who might claim to be religious. They might claim to know God. But the fact is, their heart is full of murder and hate. Their heart then is full of nothing but themselves as they don't care really about others and do nothing. They're indifferent to others. Against that background then is the true faith. We know life. Verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. You see, the belief that our salvation in Christ is eternal so that I can know for sure that I have passed from death into life is entirely biblical. Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. You see, that's where John got this same expression. He got it from Jesus. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Later on, John would write in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, These things have I written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Multitudes in our world today believe that you can lose your salvation. Some of you were raised in that very thinking. Some of you were raised in churches that taught you that there is no way that you can know for sure. That you can go through all the rituals and go through all the things and do everything that they tell you to do, but still, you can't know for sure. There's only one thing wrong with that thinking. It's wrong. John tells you right here, that you can know that you have eternal life. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. And in that knowledge then, he said, we continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now John is going to deal with the sin issue in the preceding passages as he talked about those who are genuinely saved. They don't approach life saying, well, I said a prayer and I got baptized, so now I can just do whatever I want and I'll be good. No, that's not what it is. If that's your approach to life and approach to salvation, then it's my responsibility on the basis of 1 John chapter 3 to tell you that your salvation may very well not be genuine because a genuine kind of faith in Jesus Christ doesn't mean that we'll never sin. John, listen to me carefully. John has already covered that in 1 John chapter 1. He told us that if you say that you have not sinned, what do you do? You make God a liar. That's about as serious as it gets when you look at Almighty God and say that. You say, God didn't know. Why? Because God said that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see, the presence of sin in your life as a believer does not mean that you're not saved. It means that you are saved as long as we understand that my goal is to love Jesus Christ. My goal is to live for Him. I long to please Him. And I don't look at my life saying, well, I can just live any way that I want to and sin as much as I want to because the fact is, we don't want to. We want to please God. That struggle then that comes into our life is not an indication that we're not saved. Rather, it's just the opposite. That means that we are saved. Because while the Spirit is willing, Jesus said the flesh is weak. We struggle. So we love Jesus and we live to praise Him and we live to honor Him in our life. Otherwise, we'd just love ourselves and live just to please and honor ourselves. John then presents our love for God's people as a primary proof of this. It is the world at large, you see, that hates Christians and despises us for what we believe. And Cain, of course, is the, uh, is the strongest example that's given to us. The devil works hard then to isolate us from other Christian people. Because you see, the more we're around Christian people, the more we realize, you know, I love God's people. I love being able to worship with God's people. I love being able uh, to experience uh, our faith with Him. We just love being around God's people. And when we are isolated from God's people, then we create a fertile environment for doubt to grow. In our hearts. We need each other. 
That's why God gave us a church. That's why COVID has been so hard on us in the last year. Because we were so isolated from one another. And many of you have said it, you know, I'm so thankful to be able to watch from home and some of you still are today. But you know in your heart you still miss something and what you miss is that fellowship of God's people because as we're around God's people and we are constantly running into that fact, we feel that love that we feel for God's people. And it reminds us that our faith is genuine and real. We love each other. So we know that we have life because that we love each other, but then we have to know what love is. And we do. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16, By this we know love, because He laid down His life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. Few things are more perverted and abused in our world today than the concept of love. A lot of people who just really don't know what love is. Back in 2001, there was an actor and director by the name of Woody Allen. Some of you younger folks don't know him. I understand. 2001, he had a relationship with another actress named Mia Farrow. Mia had adopted some children. One of them was an 18-year-old daughter when Woody Allen made headlines because he fell in love with Mia's daughter and began a relationship with her. Woody Allen's infamous defense, it was carried in Time magazine back in 2001, was the following. The heart wants what it wants. That's what he said. The heart wants what it wants. Now, he was widely condemned for that, but I have to wonder if he would still be condemned for it in our culture today. Because this is exactly the argument that is presented over and over and over again in our culture. Well, the heart wants what it wants. You just love who you love. Have no control over that. There's no logic to it. The heart wants what it wants. But what that reveals for us, and listen to me carefully, what that reveals for us is a profound lack of understanding of what true love really is. If you want to know what true love is, you have to look at the cross of Jesus Christ. God commended, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, and the word commend in that passage means that God held it up for examination. It is what we do when we hold something up and say, here, look at this. And God commended, God held His love up to us. God showed, God demonstrated, God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is the love of God as demonstrated through Jesus Christ then that shows us what love is. When we're talking about the heart wants what it wants, all we're talking about is attraction. That's all it is. There's all kinds of studies that's been made about human attraction and I don't know. All I know is that it can get really messed up sometimes. But I know what true love is. True love is about giving up what I want in order to embrace what I know is true and right. True love comes when I'm willing to submit, that it subverts, put down what I want 
from you in order to do what is right for you. This is the kind of love that we saw on the cross of Jesus Christ as He loved us and He gave Himself for us. This is the kind of love that husbands are called to give to their wives. Husbands, love your wives. Even as Christ also, what? Loved the church and gave Himself up for her. What incredible example then we have of the love of God through Jesus Christ. The Bible defines love not on the basis of how it feels. That's attraction and we so often get the two mixed up. But the Bible defines love on the basis of what it does and does not do. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You can read this on your own time. Love suffers long and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly. Thinketh not her own, is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Love never fails. How did God define love? On the basis of what it does and what it does not do. And this passage tells us that we know love. This is not a love, that, a knowledge that is intuitive. It's not something that we're born with. This is the kind of knowledge that we learn. How do we learn it? We learn it by living in accordance with the truth of God's Word. We learn it by looking to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. We know love. We know life. Lastly, we know truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Here it is. Confidence toward God. Because we know love and because we know life and we know the truth, then we can have a heart that is not condemning us and we can have confidence then toward our God. Condemnation from our hearts can come from two sources. It comes from our own conscience and it comes from the conviction of the Holy Spirit and sometimes both work together. We'll talk about that in a moment. But let's understand, remember now, the conscience, the Bible tells us, can be defiled. It's possible to have a defiled conscience. And you know what happens then? That happens that your conscience then begins to convict you, make your heart tell you that you're doing something wrong even though you know you're doing what is right. That is a defiled conscience, and it convicts us, makes us feel wrong, though we have done right. You might have had that experience on the job. You might have had that experience at school among some of your classmates where you do what you know is the right thing to do, and yet your heart condemns you for it, and you feel guilty because you did what you know is right. That is a defiled conscience. It's possible, the Bible says, for us to have a seared conscience. Seared in the sense of something that has been burned so that it has scar tissue and calluses and no longer feels a sensation of pain. Into this situation then, the conscience is not capable of convicting us and making us feel wrong even though we've done wrong. And a person then with a seared conscience can just go through life doing whatever to whoever and never feel a pain, not a twinge of remorse, not a twinge of conscience because their conscience is seared. But then the Bible tells us that we have a good conscience and that is a conscience then 
that is infused with the truth of God and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit then works to convict us. <laughs> and that's conscience on steroids. I tell you, when the, when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of us, yeah, it feels a whole lot like conscience, only a whole lot worse. We used to talk about the still, small voice. Uh, it's louder than thunder, isn't it? When it speaks to our hearts. But you see, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is not just about telling us what's wrong. But it's about telling us what's right as God convicts us to do things. And some of you may be feeling that even today. Some of you may be here in this service today because the Holy Spirit convicted you this week. Hey, I need to get in church. It's time for us to go. Uh, some of you may be feeling that sitting at home. I hope you are. If you're in good health and don't have a good reason not to be here, then I hope you are. The Holy Spirit will convict you. You need to get there. You need to be in church. The Holy Spirit will convict us of our need to pray, of our need to study the Bible. Sometimes He'll bring people to our mind and, and immediately we'll have an urge. You know, I need to talk to that person. I need to call that person. That's the Holy Spirit convicting us. So that our conscience works to condemn us. But also the convicting power of the Holy Spirit works to condemn our hearts. To give us those feelings of conscience. And when this is all working right. Then John tells us and we respond. We respond to our conscience. We respond to the work of the Holy Spirit. And we're left what? With a heart that does not condemn us. Because we know the truth. Because we know that our hearts are right with God. In marked contrast then to those who are murderers and haters and selfishly indifferent. We're to love in deed and in truth. And as love then flourishes in us for God. As the truth of God flourishes in our heart. As the love of God for our brothers and sisters in Christ then flourishes in us. Then our heart is filled with confidence toward God. I could give a long list of things that I stand in doubt of today. Things that I once had confidence in in our world that I don't have much confidence in anymore. The last, world, uh, last year has, in our world has shaken our confidence in a lot of structure. A lot of things. All that does, folk, is remind us of how precious it is and how powerful it is for us to have confidence in our God. Aren't you glad to know today that our God never fails? Never fails never forsakes us. That our confidence in and our faith and our relationship with God is unshakable. You need that. The writer of the book of Hebrews talked about a day that was coming and I think we're living in that day when God would shake everything that could be shaken. <laughs> Every time I, I do that, I, I want to sing an old rock and roll, roll song that says, I'm all shook up. You know, I just said, uh, God warned every time when he would shake everything in this world that can be shaken. 
so that only those things that can't be shaken will remain. Folk, that's where our faith needs to be. Where it can't be shaken. You can have that. You can. It's right here before you in 1 John chapter 3. If our heart doesn't condemn us, then we have confidence toward God. Let's stand together, please.